What do you suppose that the citizenry of the United States has in common with Iran, Sri Lanka, and Albania? Well, according to a recently released report by the Gallup people, the United States and those other three countries and their citizenry is fourth on the list of worst stressed people in the world. Can you imagine? It's easy to understand why the other three countries might be in such a state, but our country, arguably the most powerful country in the world, both militarily and economically, has that level of stress. That same report indicated that 45% of Americans are worried. Worry is plaguing us as American stress is weighing us down. It's not just the unbelieving community who wrestles with this. We know it was true in the day of David, and it's true in our day as well. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Psalms, the 94th Psalm. We're going to look at one verse there, and then we're going to look also at the 103rd Psalm. We won't read it at this moment, but we will look at it in greater detail, perhaps even Then this one verse in Psalm 94, verse 19. The psalmist writes, When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. The first thing that I would take note of is that anxious thoughts are normal for a child of God. Why do I say that? Well, please remember what... Peter writes in his second epistle, in the first chapter, in the 20th and 21st verses, paraphrase, he simply says that prophets, namely the writers of the Old Testament, did not get their message out of their own minds. Rather, the Holy Spirit moved them to speak and to record what they heard from the Lord. This man who wrote this, undoubtedly, he's unnamed, this person who wrote this was a man who was full of the Spirit of God. In a moment of candor, he speaks about the reality of having anxious thoughts. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, then your consolations delight my soul. This is not simply an Old Testament concept. It's also verified in the New Testament. None other than the great Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We were under great pressure. Does that sound like stress to you? It does to me. Far beyond our ability to endure. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Why is this normal? Well, first of all, it's normal because the world lies under the control of none other than Satan himself. So according to 1 Peter 5, 8, it's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, the devil is committed to stirring up things in our minds and intimidating us and being a bully. But also, we can't blame the devil for all our difficulty. He has 
a willing participant in this matter of anxiety, and that would be you and me. We have hearts, according to Jeremiah 17.9, that are deceitful above all else and desperately sick or wicked who can understand them. The Apostle Paul dealt with this in his own life. He speaks about it in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans. He was not alone. We are people who have hearts, even though they are redeemed, which have the capacity to condemn us. Did you catch that when we read from 1 John chapter 3? When the writer of John says, If our hearts condemn us, think about what your response is to your brothers and sisters in Christ when they find themselves in need and you have the opportunity to respond. So not only is the devil opposed to us, and he strikes anxiety into our hearts, but also our own hearts are in a state of difficulty. So here's the first very important premise of this passage of Scripture. Anxious thoughts are a normal part of the life of a child of God. Do you have anxious thoughts today? Since we last met, have you been troubled by things in your life? Let's go on to the second idea that emerges from verse 19 of Psalm 94. And it's this. Anxious thoughts snowball in our minds if not properly addressed. Look carefully again at the first line of verse 19. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me. Is that true in your life? If you have one anxious thoughts, maybe when you lie down at night and your mind begins to sort of wind down, all of a sudden there's this thought that has been lingering in your subconscious and it's there. Or maybe you wake up in the middle of the night. You should still be sound asleep. It's only been two or three or four hours and you're just wide awake and you think, why am I waking up now? And then you are reminded, oh yeah, that's why you're wide awake. And what normally happens is that anxious thoughts of a certain type are not satisfied being alone. And so here comes another anxious thoughts, set of anxious thoughts in another. And before long, you're being buried under an avalanche of anxious thoughts. Isn't that true? That's what happened in this psalmist's life. Let's look at the third idea which emerges from this passage of Scripture, and we'll spend the remainder of the morning looking at it. And it is simply this. Ancient thoughts are tamed by choosing to focus on the benefits of membership in God's family. Now, this may sound self-serving, but it's not. It's part of who we are as children of God. And God cares for us more than we will ever know. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, the Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons and daughters through this same Jesus Christ. How many blessings are ours in Christ Jesus? How many? All the blessings that are available are given to us by virtue of God's fatherly love and electing grace in our lives, but also by virtue of the presence of Christ in us and our being in Jesus Christ. 
every spiritual blessing. May I encourage you, if you really want relief, to read the book of Ephesians. You can start there. It's a book which describes all these various spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. Now, let's turn the page to Psalm 103, remembering what Psalm 94, 19 says. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. That second line is one that I need help with understanding. Your consolations delight my soul. When I'm anxious, I'm not delighting in anything. I'm stewing in the juices of my anxiety. How about you? We need relief, do we not, from the state of anxiety in our hearts. And the consolations of God are the source of that relief. In the book of Psalm 103, let's begin with the first verse. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. I don't want to be too elementary here, but to bless the Lord really means to praise the Lord, to worship the Lord, to center our attention upon God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we have to train ourselves, as David obviously had begun to do at least, when he spoke to his soul, he's talking to his soul, bless the Lord, O my soul. We need... at times to sit our souls down and give them a good talking to and tell them to by an act of the will to praise the Lord. You say, I don't feel like it. Well, I never feel like it when I'm under such pressure. Never. But that doesn't matter. I am not one who is bound to continue to be a host of anxious thoughts. I don't have to. Because of my relationship to God as my Father, and the same applies to you. Forget none of His benefits. The second line of verse 2 of Psalm 103 says, The word consolations and the word benefits, not just in the English language, but more importantly and precisely in the language of the Old Testament Hebrew, are sister words. They are synonyms. Consolation and benefit, those words are used in context other than this immediate context to describe the same thing. So when we read this, we get great help in understanding what the consolations are. And we can bring ourselves under the teaching of God's Spirit and see what these particular items are. There are five areas of anxiety addressed in the following three verses. This is almost comprehensive. I think there could be a case made for saying this teaching is comprehensive in terms of all those things which give us anxiety, but at least it covers most of them and the principles can be applied regardless of whether they're addressed in these verses. Let's begin with the first area of anxiety, and that is the area of sin in our lives. Sometimes I have lain awake at night due to unconfessed sin in my life. Unresolved sin. 
In Psalm 38, 18, the second part, David says this, I am anxious because of my sin. Some anxiety is justifiable. When I have sinned and I'm holding a grudge against someone or I'm not willing to let go of some pet sin I have, I deserve anxiety, and the Holy Spirit in His grace, mind you, comes and He works on my heart. He convicts me of that sin. He keeps me upset about it until I do something proper with that sin. That would be to repent of it, confess it, and put it behind me. The Bible says in verse 12 of Psalm 103, take a look at it. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He, that is God, of course, removed our transgressions from us. I love that. Do you like that statement? Once we confess our sins, repent of them, how far has He removed them from us? If we were to go to Micah, the great prophet of Israel, the seventh chapter, verses 18 and 19, he closes out his prophecy by saying that God has tossed our sins, our iniquities, in the depths of the sea. By implication, what is he saying? When God forgives us of our sin, then He forgets them and He's not going to fish them up from the depths of the sea. Now we know, we've already seen, the devil is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And one of his most insidious most deceitful works is that He lives night and day to accuse us who know Jesus to God the Father when we sin after having received Christ. And also He accuses us to one another whenever I start building a case in my mind against another brother or sister in Christ. I need to pause and most of the time I do. I pause and remind myself, remind my soul where that's coming from. It's coming from none other than the devil himself. But also, he accuses us to ourselves. If he cannot keep us from confessing and repenting of our sin, this is what he does. He will come to us and say, you don't really believe what the Bible says, do you? When it says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, you don't really believe that, do you? You don't really believe this verse, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed your transgressions from you. Do you really believe that? That's impossible. That's impossible. Or perhaps he would say to us what is quoted by the writer of Hebrews in 1017 from the prophet Jeremiah in the great book of Jeremiah where God says, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Believe that. It's the truth. Now that presupposes that I have become aware of my sin, that I have been troubled by my sin. It creates anxiety in my heart. It troubles me. This is one of the earmarks of a true believer of Christ, that your sin troubles you. But what does God say? In this passage which we're considering, He pardons all your iniquities. Not 98% of them, 99.5. 
but all of our iniquities. He pardons. Remember, David wrote Psalm 103. He did not write Psalm 94:19, evidently. But in his penitential Psalm 51, he was racked with anxiety. He had physical symptoms and ailments associated with a long period of refusing to come clean before God and to confess his sin that he committed along with Bathsheba and against Uriah and the others who died as they went with Uriah into battle as David had sent him to the front of the line to be sure this man whose wife David had taken as his own being killed. These other 30 men were killed in the process. And David lived with that. He was in misery for all that time. And he was a man after God's own heart. He knew and loved the Lord. But he wouldn't come clean before the Lord. We must come clean. He does in Psalm 51. He says, Against you and you only have I sinned. If we really love the Lord, truly love the Lord, and we meditate on what kind of friend He is to us, as we sang earlier, how He laid down His life for us, and there was nothing worthwhile in us when He did that. It was an act of His mercy and grace. When we really think about that, it would be great, greatly grievous to us to think about our sinning against Him. He didn't say, I sinned against Bathsheba. I sinned against Uriah and the 30 unnamed men who were murdered because of the sin of David. But he did sin against them. Make no mistake about it. But it was primarily against the Lord. When we confess our sin, he removes it. He erases it. He can't even remember it anymore. That's amazing, isn't it? To consider. So the first area where we are stressed as believers, as children of God, is the area of sin. Disobeying, crossing over the line which God has established by His Spirit in His Word that has caused us to breach into rebellion against God. Is something like that going on in your life this morning? Is it causing you to lie awake at night? Well, there's a quick and simple remedy for that. Get before the Lord. Confess your sin and turn your back on your sin. Here's the second area. Let's look at it in the second part of verse 3. Who heals all your diseases. And so the question is raised immediately in your mind, perhaps. It ain't happened to me. I've asked the Lord to heal me and it hasn't happened yet to me. Let's talk a moment about God's healing power. It's unlimited. We know that. So why does the Lord delay in healing us? I really don't have a final answer for that. But I do know what Paul says in 2 Corinthians about his own ailment. He said he had a thorn in the flesh which was a messenger of Satan. Satan didn't have the freedom to inflict that upon Paul, but he was sent by none other than God himself to ensure that Paul did not become proud. That's not to say that every evidence or experience of sin, I mean sickness in your life, 
is due to sin. Some of it is, however. But it is a preventative measure which God took in the life of the Apostle Paul. For what purpose? To keep him humble. Because he had such great gifts and God used him to do so many positive, powerful things. Remember what Paul said. He learned this lesson well. In Romans 15, 18, he says, I will not presume to speak about anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. He was humbled. And God was committed to keep him in that position of humility in his life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul calls God the God of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. So that once we are healed by Him in our hearts, the result will be we will be used by God to comfort others. So when you suffer and there is no answer to the physical or psychological problem which you deal with perhaps and you pled with the Lord to remove it, please understand the Apostle Paul understood this and he understood and the Spirit of God helps us through his example of realizing there's purpose beyond ourselves in this matter of dealing with diseases. Now, I want to take just a couple more minutes to talk about illness. Paul the Apostle, we know, was used to resuscitate Eutychus. Remember Eutychus? He was a young man, evidently. Paul got long-winded like preachers like me and he are accustomed to. And he preached into the wee hours of the night and morning. And all of a sudden he toppled over and he was dead. He goes and he raises him from the dead. Well, we know he didn't resuscitate him. The Spirit of God used him. But on many occasions, Paul was used to be an agent of healing. You might say he had gifts of healings. And that would be accurate. But the Apostle Paul speaks in his last writing in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He talks about having left one of his cohorts, Trophimus, at a place called Miletus, and he left him in a state of sickness. Well, the Apostle Paul, if he had just carte blanche to lay hands upon someone and heal that person, be sure he would have healed him before having left Miletus. And if we go to another part of the writings of Paul, the book of Philippians, in the second chapter, he talks about a man named Epaphroditus who was well-loved and respected by the church in Philippi. And they had sent a message to Paul and probably with it some sort of financial support to take care of him. And Paul was greatly encouraged by the coming of Epaphroditus. But in the process of making the journey from Macedonia, Philippi and Macedonia, all the way to the imperial city of Rome, where Paul was imprisoned, he got sick. And he was sick, it appeared, unto death. And then Paul was pleading with the Lord for his healing. It was touch and go. But God did answer the prayer. Not instantaneously, but he did answer the prayer. Now, here are a couple of things we need to understand about your illness and my illness. Firstly, God uses our body's immune system to heal us. The body is an amazing creation. If you're interested in getting a little more detail on just how your body works, we have people who are scientists and doctors, 
biology majors and so forth present, they could give us a lecture on it. This is just out of my own little bit of study. There's a great book written by a medical doctor and a great writer. Brand, the doctor, Yancey, the writer. And the book is entitled, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. Read it. It's amazing how the body and the immune system works in order to bring healing. Thank God some of you have been healed without getting any medicine in your body just because your body is built for attacking things which try to rob you of your health. Secondly, doctors have been used to heal you, probably. They've been used to heal me on more than one occasion. I've gone under the knife three different times, and I'm grateful for Dr. Gallion. I'm grateful to Dr. Griffin and grateful to Dr. Cameron, who had the gifts that God gave them, disciplined themselves to do the surgery I needed to be done, and brought healing to me. God heals through doctors, not just through surgery, but having the intellectual ability and the discipline to put those abilities to work to bring healing. Medical science. A third way is God heals people directly. We see this in the life of Paul. Now, by the way, remember, Paul's traveling companion was a man whom he called the beloved physician. His name? Luke, right? So he carried his own personal doctor with him wherever he went. That's awesome. And I'm sure Luke was used to bring some healing. But sometimes people get healed directly. There was a lady in our service last night, several years ago. She was given a diagnosis of having a malignant tumor in her body. She went back for a final assessment before entering the hospital. And there was no sign when the MRI was taken of any malignancy or tumor in her body. It was gone. That's a miracle, isn't it? Thank God for that. God can do that. And we trust Him because He heals all our diseases. Well, here's a fourth way. And it's the final way, really. We're all going to die. Is that news to you? There are two people besides those who are living on earth today and still drawing breath in the history of mankind who left this world without dying. Their names both begin with E, easy to remember, Enoch. We have very little information about him in the book of Genesis, but it does say he was a man who walked with God. That's enough said. And then there was Elijah who was taken up in a whirlwind in a chariot of fire. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I'd like to see that someday. Hopefully we'll be able to look down from heaven and give ourselves a tour of history and we'll be able to see that. But those men, I think, are going to die because the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that comes the judgment. In the book of Revelation, there are two witnesses who witness to God and to Jesus Christ and they come with great power. They're prophets. And they die. I think it happens to be Enoch and Elijah. I could be wrong. I reserve the right to be wrong, but I think that's possible. But the point is, God will ultimately heal you and me when we leave this world. We will be people who 
disrobe, as it were, this body of death, as it's described. And in its place, we will have a body that's called a spiritual body. That doesn't even make sense, does it? Those words don't go together. A spiritual body. And it will be just like Jesus. When we see Jesus, what does the Bible say? When we see Him, we will be like Him. We will be like Him in spirit, soul, and body. Completely like Him. So, the second area where we are plagued with anxious thoughts has to do with our health. Sickness. Here's the third area. Let's read about it in verse 4. Who redeems your life from the pit. Now, upon first sight, this seems to be a repetition of the first line of verse 3, which says, Who pardons all your iniquities. But upon closer examination, what we discover is that's not the case. What this has to do with is wasted opportunity. Anybody here wasted an opportunity recently in your life? I'm talking about to serve the Lord. Has anybody done that? When I look at my life, I could get very depressed. When I look at all the regretful reluctance that I have had in seizing opportunities which are placed before me. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5.15, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk by the Spirit, when we live in dependence upon God, the result is that He puts opportunities in our pathway all the time. And we need to ask the Lord, help me, Lord, to discern when you're putting an opportunity. And help me not to be so self-centered, preoccupied with my own trouble that I miss the people that you introduced me to who have troubles that you can meet and you can meet them through me. Lord, please. I have a dear friend. He and I, his wife and my wife, the four of us plus their infant son, Kirk, packed our belongings up in August of 1973. We had known each other since we were children, actually. We grew up in the same church. Three of us did, at least. And we both, the pastor that I'm about to refer to, myself, all four of us believed God was leading us to leave our home in Memphis to move to Fort Worth, Texas to enter seminary. We went there. And this friend of mine, just about three weeks ago, had bypass surgery. I talked to him last night. I talked to him again this morning. He's recovering well. He helps to be preaching in his church in Houston where he pastors next Sunday. He told me this story one time that has stuck with me and applies to this principle. The principle or the area that we need help with when it comes to dealing with anxious thoughts is the area of wasted opportunity. He told me a friend of his, his name Captain Herrig, he's a Navy pilot. He just retired in the last few weeks from a distinguished career as a Navy pilot. And he told me the story of interacting with him. Captain Herrig was a member of the church which he pastored. And how Herrig told my friend Zane Crawford, 
He said, we learn three basic principles when going through flight school, learning to fly, especially as Navy pilots. And these are the thoughts that we, are, we had ingrained into our minds. Number one, you cannot use airspeed which you have lost, nor can you regain airspace that you lost. And you can't use runway, which is behind you. Now, when I look at my life, and you probably too, if you're serious about following the Lord, and you're a little older, there's a lot of runway behind us, right? A lot of runway. Can't recover that. Maybe you saw the movie Breakthrough, which is, I would say, a great movie, by the way. And there was a sign that a teacher had in a classroom that's repeated later in the movie. It basically says, you can't do anything about yesterday, but tomorrow is yours to win or to lose. We can't do anything about what's behind us. This is what Paul says under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So it's normal and natural to grieve over missed opportunities if we really love the Lord. We want to do our best for the Lord, don't we? But the Lord is ready to redeem those wasted opportunities. He specializes in these things. We may have failed in our own minds professionally or in our marriages, with our children, in our church. Those things are real. We live in a real world, don't we? And it's troublesome. But we do not need to let ourselves be defined by those wasted opportunities. We need to learn from them, but also acknowledge and confirm that our God is one who redeems our lives from the pit. Here's the fourth area. This has to do with relationships. And this is a big one. Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. The loving kindness word is the word hesed. In Hebrew, and it's the distinctively covenant word for love between God and His children. It's the kind of love that God takes the initiative in. And He gives us that love, as has already been mentioned in this message, that's undeserved on our part. He gives it. It's closely akin to the word grace in the New Testament, which is that wonderful word about how we have a relationship by faith and by grace. And then the word that's translated compassion is the word mercy. Listen to what Jesus said when he heard that his disciples were approached by some Pharisees who were stuck up religionists. And they said as they watched Jesus interact with sinners, we saw last week that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Isn't it great to have a friend like Jesus, friend of sinners? And they said to him, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus caught wind of that. And he said to those men who were 
criticizing his associating with sinners. He said, go and study on what the Scripture says. And then he gives a quotation from their Bible, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And here's the simple statement, Come from, comes from God, where God says, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. Some of the translations actually say, I desire compassion more than sacrifice. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 36, Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. Press down, press together, filling your lap, running over. We usually hear that associated with, man, if you give, then you're going to get a lot back in return. It is an application, but it's a distortion of the context. The context of that statement is in the context of being an agent of mercy. God wants us to be merciful. And the good news is He doesn't leave us to our own devices to be able to be people who are agents of grace and mercy. Because the Bible says in the book of John, chapter 1 about Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. And of His fullness, listen, of Jesus' fullness, you have all, we have all received. If we know Him, we've received Him. He's full of grace and truth. He's come to indwell us. And He wants to use us as agents. He crowns us. Now think about that for a moment. Who wears a crown if the person's in his or her right mind? Who wears a crown? Royalty. Whose child are we if we are children of God? Whose child are we? God. Who is God? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Dare I say it? If you are a child of God, you are royalty. He crowns us. The Bible says about us who know Jesus in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, we are a royal priesthood. And the book of Revelation, the Scripture says, we are a kingdom of priests. And that's citing a reference that's made in the 19th chapter of Exodus about Israel. We are a kingdom of priests. And we, therefore, being filled with the King of kings, Jesus Himself, we have the supernatural possibility of being agents of compassion and loving kindness. Now, I know enough about myself, and I don't think... I'm the representative man in the world. I know that. But I do know enough about human nature to know that probably all of us have mistreated people along the way. Or we're just at odds with people and we have maybe not done anything wrong to them. It's just friction in a relationship and we want it to be fixed. And this creates a lot of stress in our lives, doesn't it? Some people are able just to brush it off. I'm not one of those people. And you probably aren't either. But what we want to do is be able to 
to repair the relationship, if at all possible. And we're not left, I sound like a broken record, I know that, to our own doing. It's the Spirit of God in us. And at the top of the list of the fruit of the Spirit is what word? Love. The sacrifice of self in the service of undeserving others. That's what that word means. This is the fourth area. And finally, the fifth area. I would say it's the area of unfulfilled dreams. And it's closely related to the area of wasted opportunity. Look at verse 5, Psalm 103. Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. I don't know who the most wealthy man is in El Paso. I don't know who the most wealthy woman is. I think we could find out, but we might be surprised. There may be somebody who's flying under the radar. But I would submit to you that that person's not satisfied fully today. That person may have a measure of satisfaction, but that person's concerned about the stock market, concerned about his or her investments, and it's on that person's mind a lot and probably keeps that person awake at night. The most powerful person in El Paso in terms of being able to move people to do what he wants people to do, I don't know who that would be. But probably that person's not satisfied. But we who know the Lord can be satisfied. Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content in each and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether having plenty or not having anything. How can a person be satisfied? Is that due to complacency? No, it's due to relationship with God who satisfies our years with good things. We just trust in the Lord. And good things is much broader than material things or positional power, much broader than that. It's an internal peace that's independent of any external circumstance. And it's due to the fact that the Lord is near us who are His children. He loves us. We draw near to God and He draws near to us. In the last line of this verse, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, though the outer person is wasting away, the inner person is being renewed day by day. We who know Jesus have the capacity to be forever young because we will think like Him. He is the life, remember. And we will think like Jesus as we fill our hearts and our minds with who He is, His Word. And we meditate on Him and His Word. Let me give you some steps to take. I don't like to give steps, but these are steps which have helped me and which I seek to apply from time to time. Steps to take to relieve stress. The first step is ask God to identify your anxious thoughts. And once they are identified, repent of them. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me, either against others, 
you or to myself. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do you think God would answer that prayer if you prayed it with sincerity? Absolutely, He would. That's His Word. Here's the second thing. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. That's exactly what is said in 1 Peter 3.15. What does it mean to make Jesus Lord? It means that we submit our lives to Him. We depend upon Him as surely as we depend upon the oxygen that we breathe. We depend upon Him for everything. He's our Master. And we're at the ready to be His servants. And that's who we are. We're His children. We're His sons and His daughters. But we're also His servants. This, quite frankly, would settle everything. But here are some other suggestions. Number three, enlist God's help to ensure that the meditations of your heart are pleasing to Him. Psalm 19.14 says, Let the words of my mouth, and here's the beginning point, the meditations of my heart. Remember, the heart is deceitful above all else. So we need to set apart Christ as Lord. Where? In our hearts. And then we need to know where the problem is. So we ask the Lord to pinpoint the problem in our lives uh, that's causing us to be anxious. And He does that. And then we ask Him, Lord, fill my heart with Your Word. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a middle-aged man keep his way pure? How can an old man keep his way pure? By living according to Your Word. I have hidden Your Word in my heart that I might not sin against You. So enlist God's help. Here's number four. Hang out with those who are seeking the Lord with a pure heart. This is highly undervalued, but absolutely necessary. In 2 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 22. The Scripture says, Flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who are seeking the Lord, pursuing the Lord out of a pure heart. Find some people. Ask God to give you connection with people who are in the hunt for purity of heart. They understand what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Understand this. And remember, 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. It's what we expose ourselves to do in the area of Internet and other media, music, books which we read, people that we hang out with. Jesus hung out with sinners, but He had the proper focus. We are to relate to people who don't know Jesus. We want to love them. We will let Christ love them through us. But have a core group of people that you can pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with. It's absolutely essential to having a life that is free of this oppressive kind of stress. Here's the last thing. Fix your mind on the Lord, not your circumstances. In Isaiah 
26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed, that means fixed on you, because he trusts in you. Learn to train your mind when it begins to wander to get focused on the Lord. Keep your mind on him, recognizing that he is your father. And He understands that you're a frail creature of dust. He understands all your vulnerabilities. And He's kind to you. He's loving. He's like a compassionate Father towards you. Let's look as we finish, beginning with verse 6. And I'm just going to read and make a very slight comment as we finish today. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses. His acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, thank God, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities, ditto. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father, I love this, listen, has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're this kind of God. We do not deserve anything that you give us. But on the other hand, we want to embrace you fully and in so doing, know you as the kind of compassionate Father you are. We thank you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.